morning, everybody. Good morning to everybody in this room, and good morning to everyone joining us online. It's good to have you joining us in that capacity. Thanks for all your prayers yesterday, those of you who were praying for me and with me in some various pastoral settings, the Garcia family. Uh, we had the memorial service for Tony yesterday at 1 o'clock, 23-year-old, killed in a car accident last month, so you can imagine that setting. So I think there are several Garcia family members joining us online today. We just want to let you know our love and prayers continue to be with you. Thank you to so many who've served in, in capacity like food and bringing them things like that, and they felt very loved, and uh, I think we just have a continued ministry with them. Letitia and Gabriel, many of you know them. They've been a longtime part of Eagle Family. I think they're serving downstairs today. Isn't that just like Letitia and Gabriel to serve in children's ministry the day after a memorial service like that? But you could picture that setting with the kind of weather we had yesterday, okay? So the weather yesterday represented the emotional environment of the Garcia family's gathering, right? And so when we made our way out to the gravesite and it was raining so hard, horizontal raining, and there was like 50 of us in the tent, and there's like 150 people around the tent standing, literally, as if, as if they really weren't even recognizing that it was raining because they were so kind of caught up in their own grief. They were standing there literally for a good 30 to 45 minutes. And when the Bible describes the term wailing, yesterday I got a front row seat afresh again too, right? There's a grief with loss that comes in sadness and tears and appropriate. And then there's another category called wailing that occurred. And I think yesterday and what the Garcias are going through with several family members, literally several minutes in the course of the service and at the graveside as well, wailing at the top of their lungs. It was so loud at some points that I, had to st I couldn't continue to talk because no one could actually hear anything that was being said. And so that just gives you a little window into how we can continue to pray for them. And then I left that setting and drove like 30 minutes downtown, and I walked into a room with 200 people who were so joyful and celebratory. It was a wedding setting. So I drove from that setting in a 30-minute span. It was interesting. 20-somethings gathered at the memorial service in Washington Park, 20-somethings gathered at Canal 337 downtown, and right, just the whole spectrum that way. And what was on my heart through the whole thing was how... You know, in Psalm 90, it says, teach us to number our days aright, that we may gain a heart of wisdom. That was yesterday's day, right? You just, right, number your days aright, you just have no idea. And I thought about Jesus, like, wedding a cane of Galilee, John 2, standing by Lazarus's tomb, John 11, in the whole spectrum, and just wanted to represent him well. And then I left the wedding and drove just a few blocks over to the Weston Hotel, where Colt's Chapel was last night. So... I had so many words going on yesterday, I just wanted to make sure that I was representing the right words in the right setting, you know what I'm saying, like at the right, right moment. And so I appreciate your prayers over that and grateful to be able to hopefully represent Jesus well in those settings. Open up your Bible, 1 Kings chapter 1, 1 Kings chapter 1. How many of you know the name Mayor Richard Daly? When I say that name, Mayor Richard Daly, right? Was the mayor in Chicago... So Ian's going crazy right now, Mr. Chicago, man. He's probably got a Chicago t-shirt on somewhere. So, right, he was mayor in Chicago, mid-50s into the 70s. So here's a picture of Mayor Daly. He wasn't known as the friendliest of characters. Isn't that kind of a good, right? You, that represents kind of what people said of him as a person. So he was kind of old school, cantankerous, gruff, you know, his way or the highway type of guy. So his speechwriter came to him at one point, and Mayor Daly was known like not to really read any of his speeches ahead of time. He'd just like walk up to the setting and his speechwriter would just 
be so skilled, just like put the right notes in front of him, he'd just on the fly do it. And so his speechwriter kind of mustered up the courage to go to Mayor Daly and ask for a raise. And Mayor Daly kind of had that facial reaction, I imagine, to him and basically condescendingly said, absolutely not. It should be enough for you to work with a great American hero like me. So a few weeks later, uh, Mayor Daly was at an event for the veterans uh, in Chicagoland area, and he had this big gathering of veterans, and he was talking uh, about how the veterans were overlooked and the veterans need to be more well cared for. And he, he was just starting into his speech, and he said he's, he, so he was there to outline a 17-point strategy for how to care for the veterans better. This was Mayor Daly going to cast a vision, and he turns the page on his speech. Blank sheet of paper, handwritten, you're on your own now, you great American hero. <laughs> so who got the last laugh there, right? Today, I want to talk about the journey from willfulness to willingness. And I want to talk about that journey as kind of a lead-in to the communion tables. And I want to look at this journey through a period in David's life where we've come to this section of David's life where he's sung his last song, right? I hope the lyrics to last week's song have been resonating in your heart, that it's not I and me, it's I and Oh my gosh, come on. It's not I and me, it's I and he, right? That God is with us and God is for us and God is able. Just when we think like we're all alone, God's there. And then we might not know how, but we know who, right? I don't know how, Lord. I'm not sure how this, how that. But we know who is going to make a way when there seems to be no way. So I hope those lyrics, right? So David writes his final song. He's about 70 years old. He's writing the song. He's trying to pass the baton of leadership to the leader that God had appointed. And backstory on this is God had told David earlier, Solomon, the baton was going to go from David to Solomon. But shocker, there are some other parties who didn't agree with that decision. Let's just imagine that that still happens today. But back in David's day, right, there was a clear path that God wanted a way to go. And now we're going to look at a young man in the story who was unwilling to go down the pathway from willfulness to willingness, and it cost him far more than he ever imagined. So let's look, 1 Kings chapter 1, and here's how the story begins. When King David was old... So that's about 70 years of age. Remember, he was anointed king, or he was placed on the throne at 30. He served about 40 years on the throne, so he's 70, well advanced in years. He could not keep warm even when they put covers over him. So his servant said to him, let us look for a young virgin to attend the king and take care of him. She can lie beside him so that our Lord the king may keep warm. Now, a different kind of hospice care back then, okay? Just, just saying, all right? Stay with me. Don't get distracted, all right? Verse 3, then they searched throughout Israel for a beautiful girl and found Abishag, a Shunammite, and brought her to the king. The girl was very beautiful. She took care of the king and waited on him. Here's the key phrase, but the king had no intimate relations with her. So therefore, you get all that out of your head right now. 
No intimate relations. It was just a way of like honoring the king. They found this beautiful young lady who would care for him and be an attendant and would lay beside him and help keep him warm back in that day. And now here's where the story picks up. Verse 5, now Adonijah. Now this is a new character for us in the storyline of David. Adonijah is David's fourth son. Now, the third son was Absalom. Do you remember that story? For those of you who've journeyed with us in this series, Absalom. How did Absalom exit the scene? Hanging from a tree by his hair, three spears in his heart. Well, that was a super encouraging Sunday, wasn't it? We talked about how Absalom's journey, right, is that he was usurping and undermining the God-appointed authority by means of manipulation for the purpose of control, and it cost Absalom his life. Well, so Absalom's out of the picture. The next oldest son is Adonijah. Guess what Adonijah thinks when dad's about to pass away? Who does he think the rightful heir to the throne is? Yeah, not, it's, not, it's not a trick question. Adonijah. He thinks he's it. So let's watch what he does here. Whose mother was Haggith, put himself forward and said, I will be king. What? He just puts himself forward. I will be king. Where do you think he might have learned that from? I suspect he's got plenty of Absalom in his blood. Remember, Absalom puts himself forward, stands at the gate, gathers the people, pronounces himself king, undermines the king's authority. Remember that whole, that's Absalom. And now Adonijah, same thing. He's like, hey, I'm the next in line, so there's a rightful, like, at least question, but he might have wanted to consider who's God's appointment for this. Adonijah's appointment is Adonijah. I'm going to be king. So he got 50, so he got chariots and horses ready with 50 men to run ahead of him. His father, catch this parenthesis in verse 6, his father had never interfered with him by asking, why do you behave as you do? Wow, we're going to come back to that. That's a loaded statement right there. He was also very handsome and was born next after Absalom. So here's another picture we've got in the David storyline, right? That the people's choice kind of gets enamored with the exterior. Well, he's handsome, much like Saul's that way. It's like, hey, he's handsome, he's skilled, he seems like the obvious choice. Remember all of the sons of Jesse lined up before, and David's the family runt, the eighth in line, the hagaton. You remember that Hebrew with the ordinary, that doesn't have it all together, that always kind of working through something, that God works through that means more often. And here's Adonijah again thinking he's going to put himself forward. He, I'm the obvious choice this way. And Adonijah, verse 7, conferred with Joab. Who's Joab? You remember this in the story? Joab's the military leader of David. It's been like his right-hand man leading the military. Notice what happens with Joab. He joins up with Adonijah, son of Zariah, and with Abiathar. Abiathar is the chief priest of the northern tribes, and they gave him their support. So Adonijah gets like chief priest, chief military guy, joins up with his, right, which what's, what happens, right? undermining the God-appointed authority by means of manipulation for the purpose of control, forming a tribe around you. Just imagine if that still happened today. But this is exactly the setting. And Adonijah now is going to have a choice to yield his will to go on this journey from willfulness, which we'll define in a minute, to willingness. And his inability to walk that road is going to cost him far more than he wants to pay. And I, I think it's so ironic. We'll go, we'll go back to this verse 6 now. I think 
when you look at in the David storyline, right? Remember in Absalom's storyline where David like refused to engage, like it was David's passivity over Absalom that kind of created an environment in Absalom where he was just, remember he set Joab's field on fire? Like he just wanted dad to engage. He wanted dad's attention. He wanted him to step in, step forward. He wanted his king to be his father and his father to be a king. And boy, there's a big, what happens What happens when dads don't engage in verse 6? What happens when this kind of a thing happens? When dads or moms, for that matter, why do you behave as you do? What happens when a parent fails to engage a child when they're walking out of bounds on some things and David never stepped in and said to Adonijah, why do you behave as you do? It creates a, a vacuum inside of that young man. It's just like Absalom who set Joab's field on fire. Now here's Adonijah who's got 50 men getting his chariot saying, I'm going to be king. Where did that come from? I think it's this, right, you step back to when David sinned with Bathsheba. And from that point, the ripple effect of fracture through his family, it's like he, he sensed he lost some type of moral authority to lead his household, I think, somewhere in that. And he just, he went passive, on the family front. He was disengaged. He wasn't present. I think he felt like he just probably was too guilty, too ashamed, too whatever from all that happened with Bathsheba and Uriah that he just didn't step forward with Absalom and say, why do you behave as you do? And he didn't step forward with Adonijah and say, why do you behave as you do? And into that setting, there's a vacuum that's created inside of a child where Richard Rohr says, into that setting, demons rush, demons of self-doubt and cynicism and mistrust and rage pour into that vacuum. And so what we see here in verse 6 is David's ineffectiveness of being a parent, which by the way, I would say verse 6 is a great window. Like, this isn't like, a parent isn't being old school, a parent isn't being like too hard on their kids when they step in and say, why do you behave as you do? It's actually being a parent. Like mom and dad, this is our role as parents. Even when you look at the backdrop of your own journey, perhaps you didn't handle some things in your teen years the way you would like to have handled them. And sometimes if we're honest, mom or dad, it it, kind of gives us a caution that we're afraid to step forward with our teens and lead them to higher ground on something because we ourselves didn't feel like we handled that well. And so we got to press through that, ask for God's strength, help, and courage. Of course, do it in love. Of course, make sure there's a relationship in place. But mom, dad, it's our role to say to our kids, to ask the question, why do you behave as you do? I couldn't imagine to think, what would our culture look like? What would the generation growing up look like if we had more parenting going on like that? I guarantee those of you who lead in the school system are begging the parents at home to have more dialogue like that. Because you in your teacher classroom, parent-teacher conference setting, you're dealing with stuff where it's like this. There's just this, you know, kind of just relinquishing something. We step back, we just kind of let kids figure it out on their own, let them have their own decisions. Like, that's not wise parenting, that's not good, that's not biblical parenting. This is what God wants us to do as a mom and a dad, to step forward in love, and if a kid is wandering outside the bounds, especially while they're still under your roof, you lovingly come around them and you ask the question, why do you behave as you do? That's being a good parent. 
It's not being overly controlling. So sorry, students, this is probably the least favorite part of the talk you've heard in a while. That's not being overly controlling. It's not your mom and dad being like old school. It's actually doing what God's designed the family unit to do. Mom and dad stepping forward and trying to help kids walk in righteousness. And in this case, failure with Absalom, failure with Adonijah. And do you see, like I think Adonijah is setting his dad's fields on fire. He's trying to get dad to step in. He's trying to get his king to be a father and his father to be a king. Remember we talked about what happens when there's the, a warrior like Adonijah and a warrior like Absalom and they don't have the wisdom of a good king. What happens when a young warrior doesn't have the wisdom of a good king? It's a loose cannon. That's David's storyline. That's his fracture of his family. Loose cannon. Think about in our culture today, think about all the young men and women growing up who have so much energy inside of them to want to move out and deal with the brokenness in the world, but they need the wisdom of a good king to help them deal with all of that energy of this warrior spirit inside of them. And when you don't have the wisdom of a good king to say, hey, put your sword down there, swing it here, don't swing it there, step here, step there, hey, stay in bounds here, why do you behave as you do? Call that, focus that energy. I think it's really important. And I think as a culture right now, we've got a crisis going on with all of this. And I think we're a part of the solution. Jesus Church, like we're a part of the solution to help re-engage, re-envision the role of a family unit and good kings stepping forth. Men and women, good kings stepping forth and helping provide wisdom to the young warriors that God's raising up. Otherwise, we're going to have a whole generation of loose cannons on our hand. And that's Adonijah. I'm going to be king. And David not actually engaging and saying, why, why are you behaving like this, Adonijah? Just staying passive. And I think he's setting his fields on fire. Watch what happens here in verse 11. Now Nathan asked Bathsheba. So remember Nathan is like his spiritual advisor through there. Remember it was Nathan who came to him when he fell in sin with Bathsheba. This is the same Nathan. Nathan asked Bathsheba, Solomon's mother, have you not heard that Adonijah, the son of Haggith, has become king without our Lord's David knowing it? Now then, let me advise you how you can save your own life and the life of your son Solomon. So what does that tell you? <laughs> she knows, like, like this right here, Nathan knows, like if... Adonijah carries this out, his plan and purpose is going to be eliminating a lot of the people that are close to David. So that tells you the rebellion. Remember inside of that vacuum, what ran in mistrust, cynicism, and rage? I mean, he's getting out his sword. He's ready to go. And Nathan's like, hey, um, Bathsheba, you might want to step in. Go to King David and say to him, my lord, the king, did you not swear to me, your servant? Surely Solomon, your son, shall be king after me, and he will sit on my throne why then has Adonijah become king? <laughs> while you are still there talking, while you are still there talking to the king, I will come in and confirm what you have said. So here was the plan. Basically, Bathsheba is supposed to go to the king and basically try to get him to wake up, kind of engage, step in, call your son who's out of bounds, call him back into bounds, remind him that Solomon's supposed to be the king. And so verse 29, that's what they do. They go in. They have a conversation with David, and here's what David says. The king then took an oath, and he says, verse 29, 
As surely as the Lord lives, who has delivered me out of every trouble, I will surely carry out today what I swore to you by the Lord, the God of Israel. Solomon, your son, shall be king after me, and he will sit on my throne in my place. So he's reiterating the original plan and purpose. Jump over to verse 38. So Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, Benaiah, son of Jediah, the Carathites and the Pelathites went down and put Solomon on King David's mule and escorted him to Gion. Gion's like on the eastern slopes of Mount Zion, so it's geographically close. Zadok the priest took the horn of oil from the sacred tent and anointed Solomon. Then they sounded the trumpet and all the people shouted, long live King Solomon. And all the people went up after him, playing flutes, rejoicing greatly, so that the ground shook with the sound. Well, what does that tell you about that setting? Whew, that's a loud. Well, guess whose ground's shaking right now? Adonijah. This isn't the rock concert setting he was envisioning. So now his ground is shaking. He's asking, hey, what's all the ruckus going on over in Gion? What's, what's happening? All the cheering, all the shouting, all the trumpets, all the music. And he gets word, David, he's anointed Solomon to be king. And right there in that moment, now this is obviously not exactly like Adonijah envisioned it unfolding, right? He thought he swept the kingdom out from under David, but David is re-engaged through the help of Nathan, through the help of Bathsheba, he stepped in. But that's right, it's supposed to be Solomon. And so Adonijah runs, guess where he runs to? He runs like to the altar area, right? Where the cherubim, the cherubim, the Ark of the Covenant, because he knows that that's like protected sacred space. He's like, well, at least Solomon won't slaughter me if I'm in the house of the Lord by the altar of God. So he runs in to the altar area. And here's what Solomon says when he hears about where Adonijah is and what he's done. Solomon replies, if he shows himself to be a worthy man, not a hair on his head will fall to the ground. But if evil is found in him, he will die. Then King Solomon sent men, and they brought him down from the altar. And Adonijah came and bowed down to King Solomon and said, and Solomon said, go to your home. So right here in the story, Adonijah gets another chance. It's really a picture of grace, right? Because Solomon could have easily just eliminated him in light of his behavior up to this point. He could have gone Absalom on the story, hanging from a tree by his hair, three spears in his heart. He's on the Absalom path. And Solomon says, hey, let's see. Let's see really into his heart. Let's give him another shot. Go home. See if you can join God's plan in all of this. I'm going to be king. You got to find a role in all of this. And so he goes on. And if you read into chapter two, Adonijah was unwilling to surrender, to relinquish. He just stayed in this willful posture. To the point where he goes to his mom, goes to Bathsheba and says, hey, um, could you go to Solomon and ask for Abishag to become my wife? Yeah. The young, beautiful virgin um, warming blanket of David, you know, the mattress heater of David. She asked for David's, he asked for David's mattress heater to become his wife. And in that, which was another statement, like it was, it was a culture, I mean, that was like a big slap in the face. That was like trying to gather more power and authority. And when Solomon got word on that, because Bathsheba said, yeah, I'll take that message to the king. And Solomon says, go, eliminate him. And cost Adonijah his life. He's executed. That's in 1 Kings 2. 
So let's step back from the story for a couple of minutes. I put this quote in your notes, and we'll draw like the connection now to the communion table and all of this. Dallas Willard says this, reality is what you can count on. It's what you run into when you're wrong. Isn't that a great line? For some of you, you ran headlong into reality this week. Like when you're going down a path like Adonijah was on, it might not be at that magnitude, but in your own sense, like if you're in a pathway, if you're lying, do you know you're eventually going to run into the truth? That's reality. Like it's going to, you're going to run into it. And do you know if you're caught up, like if anger has got its claws in your heart and it's leading you down a road, do you know you're eventually going to run into like a whole wake of carnage behind you of all the people's lives that have been impacted by your anger? That's reality. You're going to run into it. Or maybe you're down the road of lust and pornography, like you know you're going to run into the reality that your sexuality is going to get all out of whack and out of bounds. That's reality. Like you're going to run into it when you're on a pathway like what's described here in 1 Kings 1. And Adonijah, in his unwillingness to heed the reality he's running into, think about the opportunities he had to at least relinquish his will, his plan, his purpose. Adonijah had decided what his life should be about and where it was going. And his unwillingness to surrender that cost him his life. It's this journey from this posture of willfulness. 1 Kings 1 is a profile of willfulness. And here's how I want to describe that to you. And I put this in your notes. Willfulness, according to Ruth Haley Barton, is our attempts to impose our own ideas on others establish our own agenda, and control everything around us. Willingness is to accept and enter into what is actually happening, to rest into what is God's will and plan for you today. So do you see this? 1 Kings 1 is a profile of willfulness, of an imposing your will, your plan, your agenda. You're going to control everything. You're going to drive everything. You're going to do it in your own wisdom and strength. And it's really challenging when you're doing that and things start going well. That actually is a contributing factor to why we never want to loosen the grip. Because if you're doing that and then you're like promoted for that, celebrated for that, pat on the backs for that, accomplishing, achieving, striving, but you know in your heart of hearts you're going at Anijah on the story. It's all willfulness. It's all deep-seated in your heart. This is my way. As opposed, so 1 Kings 1 is that profile, willfulness. Now I want to give you a picture. Jesus, Matthew 26, is the picture of willingness. So what's the polar opposite of Adonijah in 1 Kings 1? Is Jesus, Garden of Gethsemane, Matthew 26. Because here's what it says of Jesus. He's in a very difficult time in his life, right? He's getting clarity on what the Father wants him to do. He's going to go to the cross. He's going to offer his life. He's going to be beaten and whipped. It's going to be bloody. It's going to be painful. It's going to be lengthy. And he gets to this point, Garden of Gethsemane, and he's sweating drops of blood, and he falls on that rock, and here's what he prays. It says, going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground. He prays. Here's the prayer for willingness. My Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, which by the way, if you've ever been in that place where you know God's leading you to do something that in your heart of hearts you really don't want to do, welcome to the Christian life. This is Jesus. 
If Jesus said to the Father, Lord, is there any other way? Church, there's going to be many times in our walk with the Lord where we're going to say, Lord, is there any other way? I'd love to find a plan B here because plan A seems way too hard, way too difficult, way too, I can't see a way through it. And then you stay with that. It's okay to be honest with that and to recognize those times do come, but stay with it with Jesus and come to the next sentence, yet not as I will, but as you will. There's willingness. There's Jesus, right, taking the journey from willfulness. He's saying, you know what? If it was my decision right now, I might steer this another way, but he goes, you know what? I'm going to go from willfulness to willingness. I'm going to surrender my will to yours. Can you feel the weight of that surrender? Can you feel that? The yielding, the submitting. The place that Adonijah was never able to, the Absalom was never able to get to. And I suspect the reason the Bible says David was a man after God's own heart, not because David's life was an ideal life, but a real life. David is not set up for us as a profile of ideal living. It's a real man with real failure, real emotions, real struggles, real heartache, and simultaneously dealing with a real God in the midst of that. And there was this compass inside of David. When he hit the darkest places, when he fell on his face in sin, where did his heart turn back to? It went from willfulness to willingness. This is David's journey. So this is why God says, there's something inside of David where I look at and go, man, when he was on his face in that pile of sin, he went back to the Lord. He sought forgiveness and grace and mercy. When he was caught up in passivity and Nathan and Bathsheba come to him, he engages back in and he resets the kingdom back to where it needs to be. It's not an ideal situation. It's a real situation. It's much more reflective of how our journeys go. Or we have the kind of days or weeks or months where it's all about, we go 1 Kings 1. We're going Adonijah on the story. And if we, were, if we were honest in our hearts of heart, we know where we've just got the death grip on. It's going this way. And the invitation this morning is the invitation to the communion table. I want you to view the table this morning. In just a few minutes, when you get up and walk over there, I want you to, as you take your steps to the table, I want you to think of it as the journey from willfulness to willingness. And I want you to join Jesus in the posture of surrender because that table communicates what was purchased for you and I in his willingness. We have no idea the ripple effect from one moment of when we release the grip of willfulness and we go down the journey of will. We have no idea the ripple effect that could come from that. And this table says far more is on the line than we perhaps realize. So worship team, come on up. We're going to transition now to the table. And I want to ask you a couple questions as we do that. I want to ask you as you think about your walk to the table, I want to ask you where in your where in the circumstances of your life you might be going Adonijah on the story? That you might be just, it's, it's way too much my will, my purpose, my plan. It's all willfulness stuff. Where do you feel deep-seated? Like there's something there. And then where do you hear the Lord whispering to you the song that David sang last week? Where do you hear him whispering to you, hey, it's not I and me, it's I and he.
And you may not know how, but you know who. So you don't have to be a member of Eagle to be a part of our communion experience here. These tables are set for anyone who's a follower of Christ. So if you've come to a place where you've surrendered your heart to Christ, these tables are open to you. You don't have to be a regular attender here. There's gluten-free tables. It's the smaller table on both sides. And in a moment, you're going to be released. And how we do it here is you just kind of get up out of your seat and you can go as a family unit. You can go by yourself. You can go with your life group, however you want to do it. And you rip off a piece of the bread and you dip it into the juice and you just kind of spread out all around this room. Spend some time praying together. Maybe spend some time praying for each other in, in some of the story. And maybe just hear afresh as you come to that table, right? Every step you take towards that table, just picture it as this, this journey from willfulness to willingness. The journey from not my will, but your will be done. And as you're standing at that table, maybe, maybe the Lord will continue to spark that song in your heart that he started last week, just being reminded, it's not I and me. You're not alone in whatever it is you're going through. It's I and he. He's there. He's with you. This table says he's with you. And you bring some big stuff to this table. You've got big decisions. You've got big issues. You've got big pathways for it. I don't see how. Some of you have been praying this week, how, oh Lord, how, oh Lord. And today the table says, you may not know how, but you know who. And you come and you bring all that to him at this table. Let's stand together. I'm going to pray for you and then you're released to the tables. Jesus, thank you so much for your willingness to say not my will, but yours, Father, be done. As we go to the table, would you just meet us in our places of willfulness? Open up our eyes to see that. Loosen up our grip. Meet us there, Lord. Speak a living word into our hearts as we go to the tables. And as we take the bread, remembering your broken body, and as we dip it into the juice, remembering your shed blood, we do it as an act of worship. Thanking you that it's an I and he journey, that you are with us. Thanking you that whatever it is we're going through, Lord, we may not know how, but we know who. of tables also have prayer benches on both sides. I'll be over here on this side. I think the Whitakers elders are going to be over here. So Matt and Beth, if you wouldn't mind hanging out over there and praying for those. So if you have some needs, you'd like to be anointed with oil, prayed for, physical, emotional, spiritual healing, healing of any course, find your way to the prayer benches, have some prayer. This is your time and space. You're dismissed to the communion tables.